0: Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled, Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. I've sort of been just in the same vein on Wednesday nights with this series, Questions, Life's Big Questions, dealing with various topics, uh, some cultural issues, most theological issues, doctrinal issues, hard topics, things that perhaps we might not necessarily really be able to tackle uh, in an in-depth kind of a way on Sunday. And so that's why I always just like an informal setting Wednesday night, just an opportunity to just kind of open up the Word and uh, just just kind of plant our feet and dig in. So we've been, last, uh, last Wednesday night, I introduced the subject of hell. And I'm surprised that so many came back knowing that it was at least <laughs> going to be a two-part series. But uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that, You know, if you like the subject, you like talking about the subject, then I would say you have some serious issues. Uh, Honestly, none of us should ever really approach this subject, I think, sort of tongue-in-cheek, ho-hum, but this is a very serious subject. We talk about life and death, and you talk about judgment. Heaven is a very real place for those who know Jesus, but hell is a very real place for those who die in their sins, and so it's a reality reality that uh, we're presented with in scripture. And Spurgeon said that no person, no man, no preacher should ever preach on the subject of hell and judgment without tears streaming down his cheeks. And I thought that was a really appropriate statement there because, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's the souls of people who are made in the image of God that we're, that we're dealing with here, we're talking about. So I wanna pick that subject right back up and um, let me just kind of give you just a few things that we looked at last week to begin with. Again, hell is a subject that we should never talk about with a yawn or a lack of concern, okay? And so just your introduction there and your study guide, if you have that tonight, we should never come to this subject, you know, sort of lackadaisical, but um, but sober-minded. It's a truth that we approach uh, sober-mindedly. And it's also true that down through the centuries of time, people have tried to explain this subject away. Um, one of the greatest theologians of our time, he passed away, I think, a couple of years ago, but Dr. R.C. Sproul. Um, has written a lot of books and um, he was of a different denominational persuasion than we are, but he was very theologically sound in so much of what he said and taught. But someone asked him the question one time that what doctrine bothered him the most, and without hesitating, he said the doctrine of hell, simply because of the gravity of the subject. And so a lot of people have tried to explain this subject away because uh, there's something in us that wants to be in control, we want to be in charge, and the notion of eternal judgment is something that we would bristle at I mentioned Spurgeon, but here is another quote. I gave you this quote last week. Uh, Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. In other words, Those who die in their sins, as the church, we should do absolutely everything that we can to be passionate evangelists who would love people to the degree that we would be willing to open up our mouth and share our faith with people because the souls of people hang in the balance. And so we dare not lose sight of the mission then that the Lord has given us and entrusted us with as His disciples. And, and the idea of an eternal hell should be something that spurs us on, that, uh, that motivates us, uh, that serves as an impetus to us to open up our lips and verbally share the good news of salvation with people who don't know Jesus. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. So the subject of hell is one of those issues we can't afford to be wrong on because there's so much at stake here. So much is hanging in the balance. Now, basic definition. What do we mean when we talk about hell, the subject of hell? Uh, is hell a literal place? Is sort of the question that we're, we're, we're sort of framing this, answering that question. And the Bible does teach that hell is a literal place. And eternal judgment is indeed a doctrinal truth. And so a basic Definition, hell is a place of eternal punishment where the ungodly will eternally experience God's righteous retribution against sin. You look at that definition and you look at those three bold words there. You've got the word punishment to just sort of frame what hell is. Uh, Ungodly, uh, those who die in their sins, uh, those who are outside of Jesus Christ when they die, uh, that sort of answers the question, who is it that will be in hell? And then retribution, retribution against sin. What is, what is the experience of hell like? What, what will people experience there? When we read about fire, we read about weeping and gnashing of teeth and you read about hell being a place where the worm dieth not and all of this that Jesus, by the way, Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody else. Uh, Jesus, people say, well, fire and brimstone preaching isn't my kind of preaching. Well, you probably don't like the Jesus who's presented in the Gospels then, because nobody in Scripture had more to say about the subject than Jesus did. So, with that in mind, why don't we just look at something that Jesus did, in fact, say about hell in in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16? If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke, chapter 16. while you're reading or turning there, I came across an article that was written by a guy named Joe Carter. And Joe Carter is an author and he's an editor for the Gospel Coalition, uh, that website, Ministry. But this article sort of pointed out how a significant portion of practicing Christians seem to reject personal evangelism. And the reason for this, according to the research that they had done, and there was some Barna research that was also referenced. But the reason that many are rejecting a practice of personal evangelism uh, is because they've also rejected the doctrine of a literal hell, which would make sense. If there is no hell, then there is no real need to get with it when it comes to the Great Commission. There's no real importance for us to verbally share the gospel. If there is no hell, if everybody's going to heaven, you know, or if, if this idea of hell, someone says, well, it's annihilation and, and a person dies and they die outside of Christ, they die, they cease to exist, but there is no hell. Some people believe that, even though that clearly rejects the plain teaching of scripture. But you could see how this disappearance of an understanding of the doctrine of hell also leads to a disappearance of fervent, personal evangelism in the lives of believers. And so that was the research. Uh, Listen to this. According to the research, and this was in this article that I read, almost half of all millennials, those ages 20 to 34, say that it's wrong to share one's beliefs, as do more than one in four Gen Xers, one in five boomers and elders. Elders 73 and older, Boomers is 54 to 72, uh, Gen X 35 to 53. Um, the article referenced. you remember? You know, Penn and Teller, the magic guys. Uh, the guy who's Penn, the Penn of the Penn and Teller. He's a practicing atheist, but someone had asked him the question about. Are you bothered by Christians who are trying to proselytize, or trying to share their faith and verbally witness to you? Listen to what he said. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He said, it doesn't offend me whatsoever, even though he's an atheist. And here you have an atheist guy who's saying the most unloving thing that a person could do if they really believed in an eternal hell the most unloving thing they could do would be to never warn somebody of the danger of it. That's from the lips of a professing atheist. He said, I always have said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward, How much do you have to hate somebody to not warn them? So I don't think I've ever been rebuked in such a more appropriate way by someone who's not even a believer, but man, how true that is. So hell does exist. We know hell does exist because this is the clear teaching of scripture and Jesus was the one who had the most to say on the subject. In many ways, Jesus shed new truth, new revelation on the subject of the afterlife as it relates to those who are not believers. And uh, Jesus even gives us a glimpse of what it's like as he gives us the testimony of a man who's in hell in Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now... I've often heard this referred to as just a parable. This is a parable that Jesus told. You know, there's some folks who think that this wasn't a parable at all, that it was actually a literal story that Jesus was telling of something that he knew that had happened or whatever. Uh, It has all of the characteristics of a parable, although it's just not specified in the text that this is a parable. I tend to believe that it's a parable, but at any rate, here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus gives us, a vivid description of what judgment is like for a person who is in hell. And so you look there in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. The Bible says that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there was laid uh, a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Uh, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. When the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. The Bible says in hell or Hades. Remember, we talked about those Greek words last week. I'll, I'll get to that again in just a second. But in Hades, in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off at Lazarus and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, or to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now imagine, imagine the, the shock and the amazement of this first century crowd who are hearing Jesus give this insight into hell. What the experience of hell is like. You, you look at this story, you've got two different men. You, you've got a man whose name is mentioned, Lazarus, and then you've got a rich man. Which, by the way, that name Lazarus, uh, it, it, um, it, it, it comes from a Hebrew word that means God helps It's closely kin to the word Eleazar, uh, the Old Testament name Eleazar. So you've got God helps. So you look at who the one is in heaven, the one in heaven is the one whom God helps. Does that make sense? Here's the one who we could say has experienced the gift of God, the grace of God. The only ones in heaven will be those who are saved by God's grace, whom God has helped, whom God has rescued, whom God has saved. And then you've got this particular rich man. Now this is not an indictment against wealth. This is not an indictment against riches. It's not a sin to possess wealth. I've said this before, the issue is always whether or not wealth possesses you, and it's idolatry. But you have this picture of a guy who's self-sufficient in this rich man. Uh, He has placed all of his confidence in the material things that he has, the comforts with which he has lived his life, not recognizing himself in need of the help of God, in need of the grace of God. And it's significant that if you go back in the context of really these last couple of chapters in Luke's gospel, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. And they had this impression that if someone had material things, then that just automatically meant the blessing of God and the favor of God on that person's life. And so they sort of had their own version of the prosperity gospel that you hear so much of today, that a sign of God's blessing is always just in material form. So this is a shocking thing to have this this beggar who's dumped at the rich man's gate, you have the beggar who is in heaven and you've got the rich man who it would seem would have the blessing of God, he's the one that lifts up his eyes in hell. And so you're able to draw from this the fact that those in hell are those uh, who die in their sins, who die in their self-sufficiency, who die in their rebellion against their creator. Something else to consider too, that in hell this rich man is, he's he's self-conscious. So this rules out any notion of annihilationism. The idea that after death, a person who doesn't know Jesus just ceases to exist. No, here is someone who has died, who's experienced physical death, and his soul is in hell, and he is experiencing literal pain and torment, and he's, he's aware of the fact. Something else to consider is that uh, he's able to understand the nature of the way that he had lived his life. The fact that he got it wrong. And so he's able to live with that sense of guilt. There's that sense of guilt and that sense of judgment that he's conscious of as he's lifted up his eyes in hell. Another thing to consider is that this man, if he could do it over again, he would be a passionate evangelist when it came to his family. Because he would beg Uh, that just send Lazarus, send someone to warn my brethren, send someone to warn my family of this terrible, awful place. And then you notice that Abraham says to him, well, they had what you had in your life. They They had Moses and the prophets. In other words, the word of God. The word of God is sufficient to warn a sinner from the error of his way. They have Moses and the prophets. No, send Lazarus back. They'll listen to someone if they rise from the dead. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to the word of God, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if Lazarus himself were to materialize in a resurrected form and mourn them. I don't know if you've ever considered just how remarkable this passage of scripture really is as it gives us a glimpse into the subject of hell, what it's like. Uh, the pain and uh, the 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 misery of it, and Jesus had so much more to say about hell in so many other d- different places. Matthew ten twenty eight. He said, "Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Jesus had more to say about hell than he did heaven, and he uses several different terms. Uh, he uses the term Hades. Hades is mentioned here. Uh, And then Gehenna is another term that we use. In fact, if you just kind of remember from last week, we talked about the reality of hell under point number one and the fact that it is mentioned so very much throughout Scripture. And in the New Testament, primarily the words of Jesus. And so there are really four or five words in Hebrew and Greek that are often translated hell in English translations. And each of these words sort of give us an insight into what hell is and what hell is like. The Hebrew word was the, the, the word sheol. In fact, you should have some blanks there under number one. You may have your worksheet from last week. This is sort of a, the, the, same, the same point. But that word sheol, S-H-E-O-L, if you were to spell it out in English, it's a word used in the Old Testament that is often translated hell. It means the grave. It refers to the grave in an abstract sense. Uh, context often determines how this word is used. Uh, the condition of physical death, it's not so much referring to a literal cemetery plot itself or a physical tomb, but death, the grave, uh, that's what it's referring to. But there are also times in the Old Testament where this word is translated to refer to the, the abode of the dead the place of disembodied existence where the soul resides after physical death. All right, where does an unbeliever go who dies in his or her sin? He goes to hell. In this disembodied state, their soul goes to hell. Uh, what the Old Testament would use the word Sheol. A second word also used in the New Testament that means the same thing is the term Hades. Hades is a Greek word that has the same meaning in the New Testament that Sheol has in the Old Testament. It's used to speak of the grave in general or the place of disembodied punishment for the unsaved dead. Uh, It's the word Hades that's used here in Luke chapter 16 in this story of the rich man and Lazarus. So again, context determines uh, which is being referred to whether it be just death in general or if it's the abode of the unsaved dead. The third word is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. I don't have my marker board or I'd write this up here again for you, but Gehenna. This word appears 12 times in the Gospels on the lips of Jesus. And it it came into Greek from, from, from Hebrew and Aramaic, that actually referred to a literal place in Israel called the Valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament, this place served as a place of child sacrifices to uh, the false god Molech and Baal under the reign of Manasseh and Ahaz, who were wicked dudes. The prophets would cry out against that sin, and they identified that place as being a fitting picture for future judgment. And so Gehenna... Gehenna is associated with eternal fire. And so when Jesus uses the word Gehenna in the Greek text, he's he's always referring to future judgment, final judgment for the wicked. That's what Revelation would describe as the lake of fire. You know, John sees a glimpse of, you know, at the end of all things and after the final judgment, he sees death and hell itself, or Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. Gehenna. So, so, again, the reality of hell. Jesus believed that hell is a real place. All right, the fourth word is the word Tartarus. It's re- used only one time. It's used in Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. I forget which reference it is. Um, but Peter uses the term as he describes angels who are kept for judgment, chains of gloomy darkness in Hell. But the word that he uses is the word Tartarus, and it's a word that actually refers to the severity of judgment. So you take all of these words that are used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and and the picture that we get of hell, folks, it ain't a place to have a picnic. Uh, It's not going to be a party. Uh, It's not going to be a place where people who die in their sins are just going to hang out and talk about good old times and that kind of thing. That's not hell. Uh, hell is being banished forever, separated from all hope, all joy, all peace. Eternal separation from the, the, the joyful presence of God. Eternal judgment, punishment for sin. And so this is why hell is such a terrible place but it's a real place. So, Jesus, his views on hell. Uh, Jesus believed that hell is a place of punishment after judgment. And he's very clear. Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, those that were separated, uh, the, the, the goats were cast into eternal punishment. And he uses words like eternal punishment, eternal fire, gehenna to refer to final judgment, the unsaved dead. Often he uses the imagery of fire and darkness to describe hell. And it's a place of destruction and eternal torment, okay? Eternal torment. Now, let me just kind of give you a second point. Let's talk about the residents of hell, all right? Who is it that that will be in hell? Who, Who will be there? Trevin Wax, he's a writer, he said this. He said, we we should shudder at churches that don't know what it means to shudder about hell. I don't know how you can take Jesus' message seriously and miss that glaring and frequent aspect of his teaching. You can mock the fire and brimstone preachers all you want, but take care that in the process, you're not mocking Jesus himself. (laughs) And so who is in hell, who is going to end up at such a terrible place? Well, we say the wicked, Uh, those bent on doing evil, those who die in their sins, which by the way, it's amazing to me, nobody has a problem envisioning someone like Hitler in hell. Uh, Those who've committed terrible crimes to fellow man, those who've uh, done terrible atrocities to humanity, People have no problem whatsoever of believing that a person like Hitler ought to be in hell. But they have a hard time envisioning themselves being worthy of such judgment and deserving of such judgment. So those who have done terrible things to humanity, they are deserving of hell in our thinking. But in short, folks, listen to me. Were it not for the grace of God, all of us would be there. All of us would be there. So, so be careful that you don't default back to this thinking of good, bad, and you know maybe if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm not going to go to hell and I die, if my bad outweighs my good. No, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's standard is absolute perfection, perfect holiness. Like you and I can't even begin to imagine and there is not a single person alive, save the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has ever met that standard of perfection. Therefore, all of us are deserving of judgment because all of us have sinned. And so Jesus made perhaps the most important statement as far as who will be in hell when he said um, uh, the unrighteous. The unrighteous, they'll hear his pronouncement of judgment. He says this in Matthew 25, 41. He says to them, depart from me, ye accursed depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels which by the way that tells us that hell was not originally created for human beings made in the image of god but it was prepared for satan and his angels who rebelled against god and the devil failed miserably in that rebellion and so there was prepared for satan and his angels a place to eternally remind them of the terrible consequences of spiritual rebellion. And so Satan chose to set himself in opposition to God and there will be no resident in hell whether demonic or human who did not opt for spiritual rebellion against God because that's our default position when we come into this world, folks. We're born in sin. We're born alienated from God. We're born and we grow up. And, listen, our default position is we shake our fist in the face of God until God in his grace save us. So this is, this, is, this is humanity. And were it not for the grace of God, we would be there. And so I've heard it said this way, the only thing that a person has to do to go to hell is to simply do absolutely nothing absolutely nothing. You you can be a good and decent person. I mean, that this rich man that Jesus talks about in Luke 16, I have this idea that he was probably a decent person. He probably was well respected. People looked on what he had, and again, probably associated the blessing of God with all of his material. He may have been somewhat moral. I mean, we're not told any of those details, but we can sort of assume. But the thing is, where the blood of Jesus is not applied, where the righteousness of Christ is not imputed. A person dies in their sin, and in that unrighteous state, hell is the only alternative. There's only two places, you know, heaven or hell. It's not just that good people go to heaven, no, saved people go to heaven. So, the residence then of hell. Um, I could talk about the rejection of hell. That's the third point. Well, it says residence twice. It's a typo. (laughs) But it's actually rejection. Point three ought to be rejection of hell. So the thing is, all of this is hard stuff. I mean, let's just be honest, it's heavy. And this unending hell, the truth of an unending hell for the lost, it's so horrible to contemplate that many refuse to believe it. And in their rejection of it, some folks have even tried to offer some alternatives uh, to the biblical doctrine of hell. And maybe try to explain away or reinterpret or reimagine what the Bible is meaning when it's talking about hell and eternal judgment. And so down through the years, there have been several deviant, uh, we would say unorthodox views Okay, I don't have this on the screen, but you can jot this down. Um, The first deviant view is this view called universalism. Universalism. Universalism is the idea that all people will end up in heaven and no one will be lost forever. Listen, that'd be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? But it's just not what the Bible says. Because it fails to take into consideration the serious nature of sin and so it's called universalism because it affirms that all people will be saved. And it can sort of masquerade in several different forms. Uh, some people believe that the atoning work of Christ will be applied to all people whether they believe or not. And so certain liberal, uh, you know, liberal expressions of Christianity, you've got some who say, well, you know, a really good Buddhist and a really good Muslim and a really good atheist and a really good Christian that, you know, they, they, the blood of Jesus covers for all of them. That's just not what scripture says. We know that's just contradictory of the plain teaching of scripture. It's contradictory to the plain teaching and statements of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. Some people would even say that, people who die in unbelief. One form of universalism says that people who die in their unbelief, having never heard of Jesus, will be given an opportunity after death. And yet there's no basis for that whatsoever in scripture. So it's really someone who's trying to just apply philosophy and and their own sense of understanding to, to, to just... They're reimagining this doctrine of hell rather than just accepting what the word of God says and Jesus himself as the authority on the subject. So universalism is one deviant view. Another deviant view is annihilationism. It's a big $5 word, but the word annihilate, annihilationism, it's the idea that the wicked will just cease to exist. You know, you've got some who hold to this view. A lot of Seventh-day Adventists hold to this view Uh, This idea that this annihilation could happen at death, physical death. It could happen in coming judgment. Uh, It could happen after a finite period of time in hell. I mean, you know, what's a sufficient amount of time in hell? (laughs) I mean, goodness. This is the idea of, you know, these passages in Scripture where Jesus talks about eternal judgment, eternal ruin or loss, their their understanding of this is that, well, it's not so much the punishment and the pain that's eternal, but it's, it's the eternal state of non-existence. And that's how they interpret that, which is just not what the text says. And again, this view fails to take into account how serious sin is. And so if if, if there's an understanding or a misunderstanding about hell in our hearts and minds, you know the thing is folks, God takes our sin a whole lot more serious than we take our sin. God sees sin in in an entirely different light than we, we tend to compare ourselves by ourselves as far as sin is concerned. But you compare one of us to an infinitely holy God. a, A God who is holy, who dwells in unapproachable light. Ah. Oh. So the seriousness then of sin, it's not it's not determined, you know, in me looking at you and you looking at me, but rather this holy infinite God has determined that sin is an infinite crime against his holiness. And an infinite crime demands infinite justice. Which is why hell is eternal. Because it's a crime against the eternal God. Yeah, one other deviant view would be this sort of this spiritualism, just a generic spiritualism, you know, that says, yeah, the lost will experience eternal punishment, but it's not physical punishment in a literal place of fire. The fire merely is symbolic and it just speaks of alienation from God. But again, that doesn't take into account the reality that both the righteous and the wicked experience resurrection There will be a resurrection for the righteous. There will be a resurrection for the unrighteous. The righteous inherit the kingdom prepared by the Father. The unrighteous are cast into the lake of fire. And the language that's used as far as judgment, it's it's, it's physical in nature, it's spiritual in nature. It's painful. So, So that's the rejection then. Now the reason the reason for hell. Let me just kind of finish up with this, the reason for it. All right, Jesus had a lot to say about it because it's the fate that awaits all people apart from him. Uh, Because of Adam's sin, all of us are guilty and we deserve punishment. And contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where God sends those who've been especially bad, but rather it's our default destination. We need a rescuer or we stand condemned. And so we're left with two options. We stay in our depravity and be eternally punished or we repent, we submit to the savior and we accept his gift of redemption. One person has said this, the one truth that allows me to accept the justice of hell is the indisputable certainty of the goodness of God. God is good, and he does all things well. And while this notion of hell may be difficult for one to grasp, Jesus is worthy of our complete trust. And his goodness would cause me to look ultimately not to hell, but to the cross. Because God's done something so that you and me and anybody else doesn't have to die and go to hell and experience eternal judgment. God's done something. He's given his son who came on an errand of mercy to taste hell for every man and every woman. To die on the cross in our place as our substitute. The only one who could make that sacrifice, the perfect son of God, perfect in every way, the only one who could die for my sin, died for my sin so that I could be saved from judgment and wrath and hell. And so, so again, people say, well, does the punishment, though, does it really fit the crime? You know, how can sins in just this finite temporal life warrant an eternal punishment, an eternal judgment? You ever grappled with that yourself? A lot of people have. Why is it that, that it's an eternal punishment whenever, whenever it was just sin done in a temporal life that in comparison to eternity was just so very brief. But let me just share something with you by Alan Gomez uh, who writes this book, it's a fantastic book, 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell, which by the way, this is a series of books on, on doctrinal issues, I don't know, there are about 12 or 13 of these books. And the chapters are individual questions related to the subject. And so this book was a question, uh, 40 questions about heaven and hell. And Gomez is uh, he's a professor of theology at Talbot Seminary. But listen to this. Uh, he says, the claim that sins committed in time uh, cannot be worthy of eternal suffering, he says, is fallacious. Because it assumes that a crime's heinousness relates directly to the time that it takes to commit it. However, such a connection is non-existent. Some crimes such as murder may take only a moment to commit, whereas it may take a thief several hours to load up a moving van with someone's possessions. And yet murder is a far more serious crime than theft and merits a more serious and enduring penalty. And then listen to this. He says, then we've got to take into account the nature of the object against which someone sins, as well as the nature of the sin itself to determine the degree of heinousness. This in turn defines both the intensity as well as the duration of the punishment deserved. To torture an animal is a crime. To torture a man, a human being is a greater crime. To steal from one's own mother is more heinous than to steal from a fellow citizen. So think about that, okay? Think about the offense, the crime. Think about the person who's being wronged. You know, if you were to come up to me and you were to strike me, that'd be a crime. It'd be a crime. i will probably forgive you, you know, but it would be a crime. What is it, what is it, simple assault? Something like that, okay? You probably would have a nice ride over to downtown You know, if you were to assault me or someone else for that matter. But let's say you were to try to assault the President of the United States. You'd be fortunate to ever see the light of day again. You understand? So the person against whom the crime is committed often even determines the severity of the crime itself. Folks, let me ask you this question. For those who have a hard time understanding the concept of an eternal hell, what is it like for a creature, a creature that gets its breath from a creator who's infinite, who's all wise, who's all powerful, who is holy like we can't imagine. What is it like for that creature to strike the creator in the face or to shake his little fist of dirt in the face of the creator himself do you see what an infinite crime sin is against the infinite god therefore it warrants infinite punishment in hell and so this idea well does the, does the punishment fit the crime absolutely when you consider the person who's being sinned against and it's a holy god but at the same time folks listen Think about what this holy God has done to save you from that infinite punishment. Think about what this infinite God has done in in entering into our messy world, living a perfect life in every way and yet allowing the creature to nail him to a cross, to pull out his beard, to spit in his face, to heap insult upon him. There on the cross, the Son of God experienced separation from God the Father. As the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in my place. That's why there can be, you can find refuge in Jesus, salvation in Jesus, hope in Jesus. And neither you nor your loved ones have to die and go to hell. Now listen, don't you think that ought to motivate us to share our faith like never before? The truth of eternal judgment. The fact that hell is a real place. Either you believe it or you don't. But the stakes are far too high for you to be wrong. Would you stand with me? All right, I'm done with that subject. I'm glad. I got to spend three weeks on heaven just two weeks on hell because it's a heavy subject. It's a heavy subject but an important one. And so Lord as we pray tonight Lord the truth of eternal judgment the truth of hell, the reality of hell the fact that those who die in their sins die and go to hell a place of eternal separation from God an eternal judgment Lord, this is such a sobering truth, a painful truth, one that's been revealed, one that Jesus had so much to say. And Lord, as those who know Jesus, I pray that we would not be so unloving that we would not open up our lips and mourn those, Lord, who are in our lives, our network of relationships, Lord, may we step out in faith and obedience and verbally share the good news of Jesus because people don't have to die and go to hell. You've done all that's necessary, Lord, to save people from their sin and to save people from wrath. I think about millions who don't know you, Lord, even in different contexts and how missions are so important and the truth of future judgment Lord, it's such an impetus for us to do everything that we can, Lord, to get the gospel out and to partner with missionaries and to give sacrificially and to spend time on our face praying for people. I think about the billions of people in Islamic contexts, Lord. Lord, that the gospel would thrive, that the underground church would just move forth in power as witnesses, Lord. Millions of people in communist contexts, Buddhist contexts. Oh, God, may the eyes of the blind be opened. Help us to live for that which matters most, Lord Jesus. Even those in our families, Lord, that don't know you. Oh, God, give us a burden for our family and our friends and our neighbors. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.